0: Shinzo Abe, former Japanese prime minister, was assassinated earlier today by a man with an improvised firearm. He was 67 years old. He was Japan's longest-serving prime minister from 2006 to 2007, and then again from 2012 to 2020. He was an arch-conservative, ultra-right politician. He was a key partner of the U.S. in its escalation of his conflict with China, the Asian pivot. Shinzo Abe dead at the age of 67. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigns as Tory leader. He stepped down amid a nonstop wave of officials from his cabinet resigning. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. It's Friday, so we're going to start the show the way we always do. He is a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He's traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts, Caleb Moppin. As always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here. So Bojo announced his resignation as the leader of the UK's Conservative Party uh, yesterday. He leaves amid several high profile scandals and following a wave of resignations of senior cabinet members. He will remain acting head of the government until a new person is selected for the job. So previous uh, leaders have said that's not a good idea, which is a very British way of saying you are really making a mistake now. But your thoughts on his resignation and is his resignation a sign of how people see him personally? Or is this a larger ideological problem based upon the realities, particularly high inflation and other problems, that the people in the UK are facing based upon this sanctions regime and other economic issues, or a combination of the two?
1: Well, I lean toward your second uh, assessment there. Uh, it's almost like you can imagine you know, the old rodeos where they had the bucking bronco or whatever, and they, you tried to stay on the horse as long as possible, but eventually they, they threw you off. I mean, this is the third prime minister in Britain to resign in the last six years. So three resignations, three prime ministers falling or stepping down in in six years. Now if you imagine it'd be like in the United States, we you know, we went through you know, I mean we went through like three presidents in that short period of time. I mean our our system is not set up the same way, so you know, we have set terms, but I mean that's a big change in government. And that the the problems that British society are facing, much like the problems the United States are facing are very massive. They are rooted in the economy and the breakdown of capitalism and the high-tech, low-wage economy that is destroying the living standards, the big soft middle that held these Western capitalist societies together. Um, and as a result of that, uh, they don't quite know what to do now. Boris Johnson has presided over escalating and just trying to escalate this tension with Russia. Uh, you know, pushing the war in Ukraine as, as hard as possible. Uh, it's been revealed that he you know, tried to intervene and prevent peace deals from going through. And the economic consequences for Britain as a result of these sanctions that were intended to hurt Russia, but now the ruble is quite strong, uh, they have been quite bad. And uh, a lot of people in Britain in the conservative end of things uh, are having a more nationalistic perspective. They voted for Brexit. Uh, they're not excited about the neocon stuff and intervening around the world and engaging in geopolitics. So. He's a conservative. He's from the Tories, but he's out of touch with how most most conservatives in Britain are feeling. So overall, um, he'll, he's out. I mean, uh, you know, Boris Johnson is interesting. He comes out of the elite. He has a certain style. People have commented on his style. He's kind of a, a crass comedian who uh, you know has has a certain charm. He knows how to. He knows how to play people up. He feels like one of, their, one, of their, one of their old friends, one of their old boys or something. People call him, well, I think Donald Trump called him Britain's Trump, but I think that's a little bit generous. I, he's got a little bit of a different style. You can compare him more to George W. Bush, I think, how everyone thought Bush was great and he could have a beer with him. Uh, but overall, he's not able to manage the collapsing uh, problems facing U.K. society.
2: You know, I tend to think also that, you know, this is just something temporary. I think the true crisis is to come when the British people, you know, they're angry because of these prices. There's been scandals for plenty of other, you know, Tony Blair had his. They all had their scandals, but he he didn't survive this scandal because people are broken, and poor and hungry. I think that when they replace him with someone and people see the same negative trajectory in their day-to-day lives, that's when the real anger comes, when people realize it isn't a person screwing us up, it's a system screwing us up. Your thoughts?
1: Oh, sure. And look, I think that the problems facing Britain are problems that the current political system and the current political spectrum are having a hard time dealing with. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party, uh, they clearly haven't been able to hijack and, you know, the anger of working class people at their high wages and such, at the high you know, cost of food, the, the, the dec- declining wages, the low wage police state, uh, you know, they, they, the Labor Party has failed. Um, and usually it would be the labor party in Britain that in a time like this, you know, they stood up for the working man, they're the party formed by the labor unions. They would, they would be in theory, the beneficiaries of this, but they've completely failed to hijack this, this resentment, uh, in order to gain power. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, Scottish independence, uh, really kind of took off, but the Scottish national party that kind of, you know, their, their, their rise in 2014, and they, they had that referendum where they almost voted to break away from the UK. And, they were kind of an anti austerity party, but now they seem to have also failed to capture that anger. Uh, Brexit did go through, but it's also pretty clear that the, the U.K. Independence party, UKIP, uh, that while they, they got Brexit, they got what they wanted, basically. I mean, they're, they've fulfilled their agenda. Nigel Farage is still a, a figure who's making commentary and such, but they, they've failed to capture the anger. And that ultimately there are going to be new political forms for this new political era. The entity in the UK that excites me the most is the Workers Party, headed by George Galloway. I mean, that really makes me inspired. They call themselves a pro-Brexit, anti-identity politics socialist party, um, and there's a lot of Muslims, uh, you know, who are a part of it that are really, you know, strongly in favor of, of Britain stopping its support for Israel and and stopping the wars around the world. There's a lot of labor union kind of people that are involved with it that are in favor of, of you know, increasing the living. Standards of the people, protecting the rights of workers on the job, uh, good-paying jobs, uh, and you know they—they they have built a very diverse coalition that kind of breaks out of the standard left and right to be anti-imperialist, anti-war, and socialist. And that's where I look for inspiration, and I hope that the Workers Party of the United Kingdom can really kind of take off and seize the moment.
0: Switching gears, uh, Iran, Russia, and China to carry out military drills in Venezuela, and you've spent a lot of time in the region. They're preparing to carry out a series of trilateral military exercises in Latin America in a show of force against the United States. What does this signal to you? And I find it very interesting that as Joe Biden was hosting his summit with some of the Americas, that Venezuelan President Maduro was traveling the world and being recognized and received. As a significant world leader. And so you take that optic and that PR campaign, and now you add to that military drills with Iran, Russia, and China. That to me says somebody's flexing and others need to pay attention.
1: Oh, sure. And look, I, I think that the Biden administration is scrambling to reinvent U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Because it's very clear the rise of Bolivarianism at the beginning of this century was a result of the fact that the main allies of the United States in Central and South America are so hated, right? During the 1980s and and the 70s and 80s, the USA propped up the hard right wing, the paramilitaries, the Contras, those kind of folks. And those folks have just made so many enemies. Uh, that you saw, you know, with Venezuela and then with Bolivia and then Nicaragua and so many places you've seen a rise in anti-imperialism and socialism. And, and it's based on kind of polarizing the population against the Latin American right wing that is just so hateable. I mean, those folks are very, very elitist, very, very racist. Uh, you know, they pride themselves on the fact that they're lighter skinned than most of the population. They have utter contempt for the people of their own countries. They're connected to all kinds of horrendous crimes. And so there's been an effort over the last several decades, and especially more recently, uh, of the United States to kind of reinvent its image and say, okay, we're no longer the buddies of those vicious paramilitary, racist, evangelical Christian Contras. Uh, we're a woke country now. We're better. We saw Kamala Harris. You know, she attended the inauguration of the new president of Honduras. Uh, the USA has not been particularly hard on Peru, and they seem to have have been able to uh, have, you know, Pedro Castillo and his government, uh, you know, they they seem to have made some alliances within that government. And the USA is trying to say, look, you can be progressive, you can be anti-racist, and you can even be a little bit of a socialist, and we'll still be friendly with you. Uh, We just want you to stay away from Russia and China. But the thing is, so many bridges have been burned. I mean, there's a pile of corpses there. I mean, in Nicaragua, there's a pile of corpses. In Venezuela, there's so many regime change attempts that that this attempt to kind of reinvent the alignment of the United States and Latin America, it's not going so well because it's like, you know, the ship has already sailed. Uh, So many countries in Latin America where the population has become politically involved, uh, they've already shifted full on into anti-imperialism. So I think now this is a controlling operation. And then on top of that, that right wing that the United States says, you know, sees is not going to win, has a lot of money and influence, not just in South and Central America, but in Miami. And so they have to keep those folks happy, and those folks are constantly pressuring them to do things that might not be in the strategic interest of the United States in the long term. A lot of Trump's uh, actions were to appease those folks, um, and I think that they may have hurt the U.S. strategy in the region. So this is a problem for the United States in that region, and uh, we're seeing ultimately uh, that you know, these military drills are a result of, of the failure of U.S. policy
2: you know, now that we're seeing Iran, Russia, China in uh, South America, we're seeing Venezuela, they're showing uh, Iranian drones in their Independence Day military parade. To some extent, hasn't the crisis in Ukraine, with the U.S. hypocritically taking a position, Ukraine is an independent country and they can form alliances with anyone they want. Haven't they kind of opened the door for other countries to come in and thumb their nose at the Monroe Doctrine and start to be militarily active in South America and Latin America?
1: Uh, at this point, Yes. I mean, look, I mean, you know, Iran is a sovereign country. Venezuela is a sovereign country. The USA has canceled both of those countries and and said no one can do business with them and try to just shut them out. And so they're saying, oh, okay. well, I guess we'll do business with each other. And then we have hilariously under the Trump administration now continued under the uh, under the Biden administration, we have them saying, oh, they can't do that. They can't come together. Why not? Why not? I mean, you have no influence there. You have no business dealings there. You've got harsh sanctions on both. Who says they can't come together? Looks like they can. Looks like they can. And it looks like Russia and China, who you're also, you know, moving against. Uh, they can as well. And I mean, I'm a little bit concerned because this speech that we heard from Mike Pompeo recently, mm-hmm. we talked about the the three lighthouses of liberty. And, you know, I mean, this is, some disturbing stuff, but this is all the reality that the world is slipping out from underneath their fingers. Russia and China are going to keep growing economically they 're going to have more influence in the global economy, and uh, the USA feels like it seems like a big section of the American elite thinks the only response to that. the only way that can be scaled back is with some kind of military confrontation and that 's quite disturbing
0: well, and that takes me to my last question we 've got just about a minute and fifteen left. Do you see that that the policy elite in the United States see that the Monroe Doctrine is failing or has failed and they're now turning their sights to the world, a la Ukraine, a la Taiwan and countries on the continent of Africa?
1: Indeed. I think that, you know, that particularly the Biden administration, they feel like they feel like the victories for the USA can be decisively fought, you know, on the Eurasian continent. Uh, They're they're less concerned about coups and interventions in South and Central America. That's very clear.
0: Caleb Moppen, as always, thank you so much for that time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Reuters reports U.S. labor market starts to cool as weekly jobless claims rise, layoffs surge. The number of Americans filing new claims for unemployment benefits unexpectedly rose last week, and there are growing signs that demand of labor is cooling with layoffs surging to a 16-month high in June as the Fed Reserve's aggressive monetary policy tightening strokes recession fears. For insight into this let's turn to our next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy. He teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He is the author of a number of books including the Scourge of Neoliberalism: U.S Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump Dr. Jack Rasmus. as always Jack, welcome back Always glad to join you guys. So economists polled by Reuters had forecast 230,000 applications for the last week. Claims have been bouncing around the 230,000 level since the beginning of June, underscoring the labor market's strength, even as some companies in the housing and technology sectors have been cutting jobs. Uh, Translate all that for us, please, Dr. Jack
3: Rasmus. Yeah, well, you know, uh, without going into all the details of how they come up with uh, the labor stats, uh, which is uh, questionable in in my view, uh, the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, the labor market is what's called a lagging indicator. Uh, It uh, begins to go in in the direction of the trend of the economy six, six to nine months after. And we're just seeing the beginning of that uh, creeping in as, as you said uh, you know we we got layoffs starting in technology and housing uh they will eventually spill over here you know six months uh, by the end of uh, the year we're going to see these monthly reports reflect uh, uh more layoffs i believe <clears throat> especially if the fed raises interest rates uh, here in next next week or so by another 75 basis points uh, that's 275 hikes. Uh, that's going to really whack the economy uh, because you already see it happening. Uh, it's already beginning to have a significant impact on consumer spending and uh, also on, on business investment. Uh, so it's coming. It's coming. I wouldn't be too concerned about month to month uh, in terms of the labor market, the numbers. You know, we, we still have, uh, what, seven. Roughly almost 7% of the people unemployed, not 3%. 3% is only full-time workers. U3, U-3, it's called unemployment rate. Uh, The U-6, which is a better indicator, uh, says, I think it was 6.7, 6.9% unemployment rate. Well, you know, on uh, 160 million, uh, you know, you you've got like a 12, 13 million people still unemployed. Uh, when you count people who dropped out of the labor force, um, you know, looking for work, can't find it, uh, <clears throat> gave up looking for work in the last four weeks, etc. Uh, the truth is always in the details in these government numbers, and you don't get the details reported in these uh, headline uh, news media uh reports uh, it, and it's especially uh, created so uh, you you get the the best scenario reported by co- the corporate media and uh, if you dig dig into the labor market data uh, you can see and the same thing with price data uh, you can see a better picture of the truth again the truth is it's a lagging indicator you'll see it later and it's still damn pretty high in terms of jobless out there
2: let me ask you this uh, well two things one and keeping in mind that there is, you know, political implications going into November. If things really start to crash, would we see the Fed reverse field on the rate hikes, number one? And number two, is it possible we'll see the kind of like the cascade of layoffs like we saw in two thousand eight where we had, you know, some months seven hundred and fifty thousand layoffs at a time. What what about those two things?
3: Well, those massive layoffs in two thousand and eight nine were the result of the freeze up of uh, of the financial system. And uh, you know when when businesses can't get uh, uh, loans to uh, roll over their production costs, uh, they have to shut down too. So the banking system shut down, so everybody, not everybody, but a lot a lot of companies' massive layoffs. I don't think you're going to see that unless uh, there is another financial crash. Which uh, could could happen, but it's not imminent. Uh, that is maybe uh, twenty twenty five, twenty twenty four. Uh, watch the junk bond and junk loan uh, markets and so forth for that. Uh, but that's when you get that kind of laugh. More likely, you're just going to see uh, uh, you know layoffs uh, begin to slowly deepen uh, throughout throughout the economy. Uh, that would be my my prediction. <clears throat> and uh, by the way. Um, I think the Fed uh, will slow down quicker than people think. Uh, they'll do another 75 basis points, and then I think they'll try to taper it down to 50 uh, in September, uh, maybe 25 after that, <clears throat> and uh, see how uh, how much they've slowed down the economy. Uh, and that's, that's the objective here. And to try to do it in a way... That it doesn't precipitate uh, a, a deep contraction of the real economy and you know rapid uh, layoffs and unemployment. They're trying to bring it to what they call a soft landing. Uh, I don't think it's going to be very soft. You've never seen a, uh, a, a Fed-induced uh, recession after inflation of, uh, of this kind of dimension uh, ever result in a soft landing. I think it'll be a hard landing here. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we'll just have to see, but the picture will be clearer by the end of the year, early next year. I still think uh, that we will see the emergence of uh, formal indicators of recession here uh, before the and by the end of the year. Uh, the economy was pretty weak going into this, uh, uh, you know, Fed rate hikes here. <clears throat> economy already contracted in the first quarter this year. We don't have the the numbers for the second quarter, but I think they're going to come in uh, uh, quite low, uh, maybe even stagnate. Uh, So that's not a a good base (laughs) on which to jack up interest rates at record rapid pace that we see going on. Uh, You're asking for trouble doing that, but... uh, you know, they, they really want to uh, deal with this inflation by precipitating a recession, by the way. All the other talk by Biden is all BS. You know, oh, we're going to, uh, um, you know, eliminate the ta- the, the tariffs on uh, Chinese uh, uh, imports to the U.S. Well, corporations just going to gobble that up and, oh, we're going to, uh, uh, you know, put a... A gas, eliminate the federal gas tax in which there'll be uh, about two or three cents a gallon savings for the people. The rest will be gobbled up by the uh, oil company uh, supply chain. Um, you know, all, all this, this stuff by Biden is BS uh, PR cover here for the real inflation um Strategy, which is to precip- get the Fed to precipitate another recession and and take it out on the backs of demand and consumer spending, for what is largely a supply chain, supply side, oil company uh, sanctions. Uh, let's wreck the uh, global supply chains. <laughs> uh, more inflation.
0: There's another story. We didn't send it to you this morning, but I know you're tracking it. Demand for mortgages is dropping, and so are interest rates. House hunters are seeing a bright spot in the market. This is according to CBS. This month, as mortgage rates have dropped slightly and the amount of homes available for purchase has increased. Is this tied to the Fed action, interest rates going up, then we started to see an impact on the on the housing market.
3: Well, you you got to remember what's gone on for the last couple of weeks is uh, uh, investors and markets and so forth have finally realized what the session is coming, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that's had a short term. Uh, impact on uh, both prices uh, and, of course, uh, interest rates with just the price of money. You see, that's all interest rates is, the Mm -hmm. price of money. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've seen a little bit of a pullback uh, going on and the expectation that, uh, oh, uh, the Fed is working, the Fed policy is working, and it's going to slow down the economy. Uh, So in, in anticipation of that, trying to time that, Uh, You know, the banks and and other uh, lenders here lowered their prices, the the price of money interest Mm -hmm. rates a little bit, just as the oil companies lowered their prices a little bit. But this is all a temporary uh, development, you know, a a blip in the bigger trend, I think, uh, which is for uh, prices and the price of money to be chronically high uh, throughout the rest of the year. And, uh, you know, even uh, Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde of the the European Central Bank have said, uh, oh, well, you know, prices aren't really going to come down very much. And that's true. It's going to remain chronically high. And people in California who are paying $7 uh, for a, a gallon of gas are going to continue to pay at least $6 mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the year. These prices aren't coming down, but in in the short run, you're going to see these little blips up and down, right? Uh, but they will remain chronically high here. And that's what's going to happen with, with uh, interest rates and mortgages and so forth. You know, you'll see a little blip, um, which is going on now. And then... Um, It'll it'll level off at a high level, or even uh, uh, you know bounce up and down at that higher threshold level of uh, of uh, five to six percent.
2: Let me ask you this: speaking of gas and prices and oil prices, what do you make of the U.S. and its allies' scheme they've been talking about to allegedly cap Russian oil price at forty to sixty dollars a barrel?
3: That's a joke. I mean, come on! I've written about that on my blog. Uh, JackRasmus.com, people want to read the article. But, you know, what that says is that these uh, uh, hubris, bloated uh, Western NATO <laughs> economies and politicians think that they can influence the global price of oil by just declaring that, uh, oh, you know, uh, we got to lower that price and all of us are going to agree not to purchase oil Um you know, if it's any higher than 40 to $60 a barrel, i.e. $50 a barrel, you know. Russia's already selling uh, heavily discounted its oil to India, about 30% off the $100 a barrel. So it's selling to India around $70 a barrel. And, uh, you know, uh, the West uh, says uh, uh, the G7, says that, oh, you know, we're not going to buy it more than $50 a barrel. Well, they've also said that they're going to wean themselves off of all Russian oil by the end of the year, right? Um, So that that will be $0 a barrel for them. (laughs) What a a bargain. I think I'll buy some of that. (laughs) Yeah, so and in the interim, they're saying, no, we're only going to pay $50 a barrel. Well, why the hell should Russia sell them at $50 a barrel anything, and they, prob- and they probably won't, you know. Why should it undercut its $70 already discounted price to India if, uh, you know, the G7 is, is going to stop buying the oil in six months anyway? And, and besides, you know, uh, uh, arrogant uh, G7 economies cannot set the price of global oil, You know, uh, by arbitrarily uh, dictating, this Mm -hmm. is what we're going to do. Look, this is a PR thing. Demand does not drive supply in this case. You know, when uh, Russian oil, five six million barrels a day, are taken off the off the market, uh, you know, that's not going. That's a supply issue. Demand does not drive supply in global commodities in this particular era. Right? But they think so. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's all a cover. It's a PR cover because they can't do and aren't doing anything about it. The high energy mm-hmm. prices—they're uh, not doing because they can't do. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So they say we're going to control uh, through demand, uh, bring the price down. You know, uh, I mean that's that's like uh, then, you know Biden coming up with all his BS uh, solutions here. You know that, that that's just for public consumption.
0: Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. And you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Foreign Secretary Lavrov laces into Western doublethink on Ukraine at the G20 event. Western nations are employing doublethink on Ukraine, which makes it clear that they are more concerned about ideology than the country itself. This is according to Russian top diplomat Sergey Lavrov he said this following the recent G20 foreign minister meeting in Indonesia for insight into this we turn to our next guest he works with tell the word the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in Inner City Washington and he was a CIA analyst for 27 years served on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity Ray McGovern as always Ray welcome back Thank you. Quote, I took the liberty of reminding our Western colleagues about what they said in the previous months and asked them to make up their mind about what they want. After all, the West's doublethink shows that it is ideology that comes first rather than their concern about Ukrainians, Ukraine and European security in general. If the West doesn't want talks to take place but wishes for Ukraine to defeat Russia on the battlefield, then perhaps there is nothing to talk about with the West. Ray, Western media and analysts will describe this or spin this as Lavrov threatening, but I interpret this as Lavrov speaking the truth from the Russian perspective and saying, I'll fight you as long as you want to fight, especially since you want to fight with Ukrainians and not with your own troops, Ray McGovern. That's true. Um,
4: When he says uh, there's nothing to talk about, that's another way of saying uh, what Putin said a day or two ago, and that is, if you insist on trying to defeat Russia in the battlefield of Ukraine. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, that's the vernacular translation uh, by me. Mm-hmm. But that's what he's saying. Uh, the interesting thing here is even that even though Lavrov was pretty pretty brutal here uh, and blaming, blaming the West for preventing Ukraine from entering talks, and there's every, every evidence to suggest that that is true. Um, what he also said was, uh, look, um, uh, people are making a lot of money uh, with these weapons sales. Uh, and what the West is doing is preventing the peace process and making it uh, a question of targeting citizen, city, uh, citizens kill civil kill civilians. <laughs> Uh, And what we see happening every day, and what we cannot tolerate, says uh, says Lavrov. So, uh, you know, we have we have a lot in Western media about killing civilians and targeting cities. Uh, If you come right down uh, when it meets the ground, you can see that the Ukrainians are equally guilty of shelling cities. The shelling this the cities in Donbass, and nobody reports that because no Western journalist would dare report it. There's only two, I think, one or two people in the Donbass who have been there for a while reporting and showing videos of of how the Ukrainian army is shelling uh, apartment houses and so forth in in Donetsk, in in the capital. Uh, There's no reason for that right now. This is vindictive. This is a a parting shot before they have to lose and move back farther west. So it's really kind of, you know, it's it's a mess. And uh, as long as uh, Biden says, well, we're in this for the duration, as he said, we're we're in it for as long as it takes. Well, you know, think about the Ukrainians here. Uh, Russia's not going to leave. Russia is not going to stop. They do offer to begin negotiations here, but they charge the US with preventing the Ukrainians from doing that. As I say, there's every every evidence that supports that. So where we are is a situation where even even the head of, uh, of national intelligence complains that this is pretty grim. It's a grim situation. It's going to last a long time. Now, Averill Haynes, the director of national intelligence, doesn't get, to, doesn't get to decide what to do about this situation. Biden does. And according to Biden and his, I won't use adjectives, his advisors, <laughs> um, he's, he's going to do it uh, for the duration. Uh, and I fear at least until the November midterm elections, because that's a good part of what this is all about, the domestic situation in the United States. And Putin, if anyone understands that, having said many times that foreign military policy on the part of the US is hostage, his word, hostage to domestic political requirements. So November, well, that's several months away. How many Ukrainians will be sacrificed in in that period of time? Well, who knows? But. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem to be very concerned about that, nor do his adolescent advisors.
2: You know, Ray, I noticed one thing, and that is these conversations are always either prefaced or uh, end with from the Russians. We're ready and willing to negotiate. But or they'll make the statement and they'll say, but we're willing to negotiate. My take is this. I think the Russians are looking at this. And if you look at it long term, even medium term, The economic pain is going to be so um, pronounced in Europe, I think that at some point the the Europeans are going to be at either, look, either we make a deal with the Russians for cheap energy again or the whole thing is over in Europe and it turns into a backwater dystopian hellscape. And I think the Russians are just, we're going to leave the door open. We don't trust you. You don't like us. We don't like you anymore. We don't trust you anymore. But. If at some point in the future you want to have a relationship where we're both acknowledge that we exist and we act advantageous to our own personal needs, we're willing and able to do that. That's the way I see it. What do you think? I think that's largely right. Um, You know, we really have to go back to uh, how this
4: whole thing started and whether Washington is correct in saying that what Putin did in Ukraine was, quote, unprovoked, unprovoked. Well, uh, I array the the real evidence on this in a a recent, actually yesterday, speech uh, that uh, I've posted on my own website now. Uh, And what I see here is uh, that unprovoked is a lie, an out-and-out lie, that uh, Putin was provoked. And unless we understand why he was provoked and what he intends to do to end that provocation, we can't hope to figure out when this thing is going to stop or even when Russian armies are going to stop with their westward advance. Will they stop at Odessa? Will they stop at the Moldova? Where are they going to stop? Well, they're going to keep going as long as there are no negotiations. And they may even do that under negotiation. So the key thing is to understand that this was not unprovoked, that there were ample reasons and and we can discern what Putin really wants. It has to do with the emplacement of intermediate range missiles in Ukraine. They're already in Romania. They're going into Poland. Uh, They can reduce Putin's warning time to five minutes, if you can believe it. It's about seven to nine minutes now if they use a cruise missile. If they use a hypersonic missile, if the US ever, ever, ever uh, kind of develops one, then it's five minutes. That's not enough warning time uh, to decide whether or not to blow up the rest of the world. So what I'm saying here is that if that was Putin's primary intention, and that includes, of course, destroying the Ukrainian army, moving uh, the the safe ceasefire line or border, or whatever you want to call it, way to the west, like maybe towards Yessa, which I think is probable. Then, then we could talk about, well, okay, is he satisfied now? Will he come to an agreement? He says he's willing to talk. Can we talk? And the answer, unfortunately, that I give myself is, well, nothing's going to happen before November because Biden's got to feel that he's appearing very strong, spacing up to this, quote, unprovoked, end quote, aggression. It was provoked. People had acknowledge that to figure out how to get out of
0: this mess. Russia's Medvedev warns United States messing with a nuclear power is folly. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev told the U.S., on Wednesday, that attempts by the West to punish a nuclear power such as Russia for the war in Ukraine risked endangering humanity. And he cast the U.S. as an empire which has spilled blood across the world, citing the killing of Native Americans, U.S. nuclear attacks on Japan, and a host of wars ranging from Vietnam to Afghanistan. What that says to me, Ray, is Dmitry Medvedev using a longer arc of history. One of the big mistakes that a lot of Americans make is we have a tendency to view events like this as though they occur in a vacuum. And to your earlier point, was this unprovoked or not? Well, if you understand the longer arc of history, you would understand that This was a provocation and historically has been viewed as a provocation for a very long time. Your thoughts, Ray McGovern?
4: Well, Medvedev has personal experience in this. He was president, after all, uh, during that interregnum when Putin couldn't have another consecutive uh, term. So it was he that met with uh, President Obama in Seoul, Korea, uh, back in 2020. Okay. Now, why do I mention that? Well, I mention that because they're sitting at this table, the video is on, they thought the audio was (laughs) off. Sorry guys, here's the audio, here's Medvedev. We have to do something about these so-called anti-ballistic missile sites that you're putting in Poland and Romania. Uh, Vladimir wants to talk about this. Obama, uh, oh, be patient. Um, uh, I uh, it, let me. I have I, let me win re-election, and then then I'll have more flexibility. End quote. So this thing has been troubling Medvedev personally on a personal level and a personal involvement. For, for a decade now, okay, was it, 2022, yeah, that's a decade if my math is good. Uh, so their concern has been repeatedly stated. It's not uh, evidenced in the Western media, but as I mentioned before, this speech that I gave uh, applies textual analysis, applies what we used to call media analysis. Uh, takes a look at what they've said in the past, what they're saying now, and proves, I think, beyond reasonable doubt, uh, that this was provoked. And if we don't don't understand Russian concerns and why it was, why they found it a provocation, there's no way we're going to settle this thing until the Russians have taken over. Well, most of Ukraine, perhaps as far west as Moldova and perhaps everything on the east side of the Dnieper River. That would be a lot. That would be hard to defend. So we would be in for a long, long struggle beyond peace talks, if I read this situation
0: correctly. Really quickly, with you talking about Russia consuming as much of the Ukraine as you've just laid out, is it possible that Poland might want to look at what's left? Uh, what happens to the remainder? We've got just 45 seconds.
4: Well, that's a, a really good question. All bets are off, of course. Uh, the polls cannot be relied upon to act seriously or to act, uh, well, in a rational way if they think the U.S. is behind them. So that is a potential power cake. Right now, I don't think it's very likely that the polls would decide that they go in and take parts of the Ukraine that used to belong to them.
0: Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Most welcome. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Japan's longest-serving prime minister from 2006 to 2007, then from 2012 to 2020, was assassinated earlier today. He was an arch-conservative, ultra-right politician who was a key partner and enabler of the United States in its escalations against China, the Asia Pivot. For analysis and insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist. He's a writer and a teacher. K.J. No, As always, K.J., welcome back.
5: Yes, always a pleasure to be with you.
0: You know, it's interesting, when I first started reading in the mainstream Western press the fact that uh, Shinzo Abe had been assassinated, you would have thought that he was a Democrat. You would have thought that he was left-leaning. You would have thought that he was just this warm, loving, nice guy whose policies were were populist and that he was really working in the best interest of the working class in Japan. But when I got a little deeper, I said, yeah, I think there's more to this than that. Hence, you sent us the, your analysis and that wasn't quite the case.
5: Yes. No, it's not the case at all. I mean, Shinzo is many things, but certainly, you know, he is not, A man of the people. He actually comes from an elite political dynasty, and this political dynasty, you know, has a horrific record. His grandfather was one of the worst war criminals of World War Two, and then uh, they, uh, his grandfather Nobusuke Kishi, along with the CIA, created Japan's one-party state of the LDP. The Japan has been a de facto one-party state since 1955, and it was created with the help of the CIA. Uh, Kishi, uh, the Shinzabe's grandfather, uh, was the key architect of this, and they created what some historians refer to as a developmental dictatorship, certainly uh, a de facto one-party state. They've been in power for 64 years. And except for a very short interlude, they've had almost complete control of the country. But the key uh, fact of their dynasty and the LDP itself is that they have been a vassal. And I say that with full emphasis on the word and all of its implications. They were a vassal of the United States. And when Kishi came into power, uh, he essentially uh, ran the... He he essentially ran the Pacific pivot for uh, the United States in Northeast Asia. He was also the uh, architect of the Quad Alliance.
2: You know, when I see the kind of people that the United States has had in power in Japan and the way that, you know, really dangerous nationalist element in their societies not only survived, but, you know, has been, you know, I'll put it like this. I could make a comparison to Ukraine, how the U.S. nurtured the Nazis and fascists in Ukraine and how it, it appears that they did the same thing in Japan. I see why. It's difficult for the U.S. to build up this so-called Asian NATO because I am sure that people in Korea and China and these other countries that were so beaten and abused and oppressed and slaughtered by the Japanese in World War II would look at the obbies and look at what's going on and say, no, we don't want any part of a coalition with this group. Your thoughts?
5: You're absolutely correct. Yes. And you're, you're also correct in in, in the analysis that the LDP and and Abe's grandfather, Chishi, uh, essentially created uh, something very close to a fascist uh, party inside Japan. Uh, just to go back to the, you know, the assassination itself, uh, you know, the assassin, you know, was a 41-year-old former Japanese Navy veteran, and he seems to have used a handmade shotgun. He seems to be a little bit like Japan's Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, Mm -hmm. but the police say that he believed rumors about Abe's connections to a certain organization. And this is also being reported as Abe's connection to a certain religious group. Uh, And my guess is that this group is the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership. This is a far-right militaristic group that believes in the rejuvenation and the re-establishment of the Japanese empire, and it wants to ban state-religion separation. There are about 301 members of the LDP that actually belong to the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership, and uh, without a doubt, they are the ultra-nationalist, ultra-fascist, ultra-imperialist ruling class of Japan who, of course, do not represent anything that the Japanese people themselves want.
0: In terms of your analogy of uh, Travis Bickle, for those who either didn't see Taxi Driver or don't remember, Travis, he, he was about a 26, 27-year-old. He was a veteran, a Marine. He had served in Vietnam. He was living in New York, and he, he was incredibly, incredibly paranoid. And it was his paranoia that really seemed to drive the the, the film. Talk about those attributes and, and why you drew the comparison that you drew.
5: Well, I mean, these are superficial analogies because there are too many questions unanswered at this point. But he is uh, like the movie character. He's a former veteran. Uh, he seems to, you know... Improvised his attack. Uh, there is one uh, one theory, which is that he intends to target a senior official of the religious group. Except that this person was not there, so opportunistically, you know, he attacked uh, Shinzo Abe. Uh, the other uh, uh, the other theory is that uh, he was actually intending to assassinate Shinzo Abe. But uh, they're also concerned about his mental health. He's made a lot of apparently nonsensical statements and the police are investigating whether he's actually mentally competent. So uh, these are superficial analogies, but certainly uh, this is a bizarre and violent uh, Mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think that's the key relationship.
0: A bizarre and violent act in in a very, very unique culture. The last time I heard of someone in Japan getting assassinated was never. Not to say it hasn't happened, but it's not the United States. This type of violence, as I understand it, is incredibly, incredibly unique to the culture. Should this have more significance by the fact it happened in Japan as opposed to happening in Los Angeles?
5: You know, I think we can all draw different conclusions for it. What we do know is that uh, when Abe was uh, campaigning, and this is for the upper house elections, uh, he only had a single bodyguard with him, and this person was able to approach him and shoot him twice with a handmade shotgun. Uh, So certainly it will change Japanese campaigning uh, culture. But I think it's uh, misleading to say that Japan hasn't had a lot of violence. The The culture itself and the creation of the LDP itself was a tremendous act of violence. It was essentially uh, an, uh, a collaboration between the business class, the CIA, the political class, and of course, the Japanese uh, mafia, the Yakuza. And so the LDP was born in violence and blood. And, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of sad, but poetic, uh, uh, you know, chiastic story that explains what happened to uh, Shinzo Abe.
2: So now, what is the state of Japan politically, and does this have any effect on anything, or is it just something that we're going to talk about and it's going to expose some things?
5: My assessment is that it will uh, brace and and accelerate the militarization of Japan and the uh, anti-China uh, 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 campaign. Shinzo Abe, you know, was uh, in in all essence, he was the person who created tension with North Korea when he didn't have to. He created tension with South Korea when he didn't have to. He created uh, escalation against China when he didn't have to. And all of his projects, all of his militarism, his hawkishness, and his extreme far-right ultra-nationalism, will be accentuated and accelerated because of his death, because he will become a sort of a martyr, and that will rally people to the LDP, and therefore they will overrun the upper house. And that will shift things considerably uh, in terms of not only Japan's uh, political scene, but globally and geopolitically.
0: (sighs) You mentioned South Korea, and in your description of Abe, there seem to be some similarities between him and the current president of South Korea. Am I off base there? And if not, do those similarities indicate that the United States now really gains the upper hand in the region?
5: Um, I think you're absolutely correct that the U.S. uh, is and has been gaining the upper hand in the region, certainly. Uh, the the approach of NATO to Japan uh, and South Korea, that they will become de facto NATO NATO allies or NATO members, signals that the U.S. is moving to a position of strength in that particular area. Uh, And regarding the similarity between Yoon So-yeol and Shinzo Abe, I would say that they were uh, very similar in that they are right-wing extremists, chicken hawks, who were uh, vassals of the United States, utter and total sycophants.
2: I don't know if you've seen this. I did want to ask you about this, and I think it's related. There was an article in TASS, and they basically said that the PLA has said they are ready for war. They are ready uh, for—the Chinese army points to readiness for war amid U.S. Senators' Taiwan visit.
5: Uh, I mean, I think it's important for the United States to take China at its word. The Chinese don't say things lightly, and they don't say things simply to signal things. They are making clear messages. The Chinese don't want war. They don't want any kinetic engagement with Taiwan. There are only two times in the year when Taiwan can actually be crossed uh, through a military campaign that's in April and October. So the the Chinese really don't want war, but they're sending the message to the United States as they did during the Korean War. You've crossed some pretty serious red lines here, and you really need to think about this. What, what could happen is that the United States and China could go directly to war. It will not be a proxy war, the, the Chinese have signaled that if you go this far, this will be a straight-on uh, mano-a-mano war between U.S. and China. And I think it behooves the U.S. political class to think about that, listen carefully, and to uh, look for other alternatives.
0: We have one minute left, and Sergei Lavrov at the G20 seems to be saying the same thing, that China's saying, you guys are heading down the wrong road with the wrong people.
5: Exactly, and remember uh Putin has said that you know uh, you haven't seen anything yet you know we you know we have been working with uh, kid gloves, but you know if this goes further, uh, there's a lot more uh you know artillery that can be brought to bear literally and metaphorically, so yes, I think we're in a very, very dangerous place, and it is my fervent wish and hope that we have political leaders who are capable of listening negotiating, dialoguing, and above all, de-escalating.
0: K.J. no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
5: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Sputnik News reports. Foreign Minister Lavrov says if the West wants to defeat Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine— there's no sense in talks. The Western nations have been supplying Ukraine with multiple weapons, escalating the situation amid the special military operation being carried out by Moscow. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov stated today that if the West hopes to resolve the situation in Ukraine militarily, peace negotiations are useless. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guests. It's Friday, so it's panel time. We're joined by an international national geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran and former international security analyst in Washington DC. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, David, welcome back.
6: Pleasure to be with you.
0: We're also joined by a former US Marine Corps intelligence officer. He served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. His most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika. Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So these comments come in the wake of the G20 event in Bali, Indonesia. Again, if the West wants not negotiations, but the victory of Ukraine over Russia on the battlefield, then probably there is simply nothing to talk about with the West since this approach does not allow Ukraine to move forwards towards the peace process. Let me start with you, uh, Dr. David Walalu. Western analysts or media will spin this as Lavrov threatening. I see this as Lavrov stating a very clear, simple reality that very few people here want to accept.
6: Well, it, indeed, Wilmer, because the reality of it is that the statement by Lavrov should indicate, and it, it does indicate that you cannot negotiate with the uh, Ukraine government because it can make a decision who is, who makes a decision is the united states in this case so this is why Lavrov's statement makes perfect sense equally important is if you are not willing to negotiate why you still send in arms and there is no need for talks because it's almost like as we say pouring water over the sand and russia it's approaching this pragmatically from that that aspect of saying, hey, the new global order is already uh, changed. Now, you are not, you, the United States, not in a position to be doing whatever you want. And this is the reality of it. And and I see the logic in Lavrov's statement, which I am sure is not going to be well-received in Washington or Brussels, for that matter.
2: Uh, Scott, if I could add one other quick thing, and I'd also add to this, in the context of the recent statements by Petro Poroshenko where he said, well, the Minsk agreement, we never intended to carry that out. We just did that to, so the Russians would step aside for a while and we could rebuild our military and fight them again. And I think that has to be taken into this, too, because the Russians are also saying, look, you know, you guys, A, you don't seem like you want to negotiate, and B, we can't trust you when you do, Scott.
7: Well, I'll add. Uh, I'll add one other thing. And C, we're winning. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that, 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 and that's literally the only the only point that counts. Trust me. If Russia wasn't winning, if this was anywhere near a stalemate, um, you know, the Russians are very pragmatic, and you would be see you would see them, um, you know, looking for off ramps. Uh, there, there, there is no off ramp. Russia. just doesn't isn't looking for one they don't want anyone to build one they've got one direction that's towards total victory uh more important than lavrov and believe me every time lavrov speaks i listen but um he's just the foreign minister there's this guy called vladimir putin who's the president and he gave a speech yesterday a, a, a presentation where he not only echoed uh what what lavrov was saying but he expanded on it uh and again, this comes to my point of C, Russia is winning. According to Putin, Russia ain't even begun. <laughs> we haven't even started what we're going to be doing in Ukraine. Um, this is going to be going on for some time. Um, you know, it, it, and I'll just say that uh, the longer you guys want to play this game of fight us, uh, the harder it is for you to, uh, to, 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 to end it because we're, we're just going to keep going. We're going to put the accelerator down. And, um, you know, sorry, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be good for you. Uh, you know, and, 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 Putin was very blunt. He said, uh, for those people who want to fight us, if you think you can fight us, you say you want to fight us, you say you can beat us. He said, well, then let's, let's give it a try. <laughs> let's give it a try. Um, you know, quit talking, bring it up. Let's do it. Tee it up. We're ready to go. Russia's rocket. And here's the the reality of it. um, as we speak here now, there is only one army in Europe with combat-proven forces capable of fighting and winning large-scale ground combat uh, in the European continent, and that's Russia. There's no other army capable of fighting and winning. There's very few armies that are capable of fighting. Uh, NATO has become an empty shell of a military organization. Uh, most of their units can't even get out of the barracks because they haven't maintained their equipment properly. They haven't trained. They don't have any ammunition. I mean, that's just a, thats just an amazing reality here in a in a war where artillery is the king of battle. And Russia is pounding the Ukrainians with sixty to seventy thousand rounds a day. By matter of perspective. The United States fired 60,000 rounds for the totality of Operation Desert Storm in 1991. Oh. Uh, Europe is facing a situation that if they if they want to engage Russia uh, on this scale, they'll run out of ammunition in less than two weeks. Um, and then that's all she wrote. I mean, they're, they're, the war's over at that point because <laughs> there won't be anything left. So, you know, the Russians are very, very confident. I've never seen the Russians so confident. Um, And they're also very patient, Um, far more patient than I am as an observer. Uh, And that, that again, underscores, uh, you know, just the strength of their position. And, you know, their their strength resonates beyond Ukraine. Um, You know, Lithuania is now waking up to the fact that they will cease to exist as a modern state in the very near future if they continue to play games with Russia about Kaliningrad. The Estonian prime minister, um, who is, you know, the, she's the new Margaret Thatcher, um, has you know, resigned for a variety of reasons. But one of which is she got ahead of the skis, so to speak, uh, you know, making Estonia one of these nations that was, um, you know, very aggressive vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. And uh, uh, she herself had to come to a realization at the NATO summit that, A, NATO wasn't going to do anything, that NATO was a joke. And that if Russia went to war against her country, it would be eliminated as a, as a modern state. This is just a statement of fact. Reality is coming to kick in. And uh, that's why I, I add that important C. Russia is winning. And that's the only thing that
2: matters. Here's the other part of it. Uh, Dmitry Trennan has an interesting article in RT. Russia has made a decisive break with the West and is ready to help shape a new world order because the there are important facets, important lenses through which you can view this particular engagement. Of course, there's the military, there's political, and there is the economic. And with bricks and all kinds of new things going on, I, in fact, I just saw this morning, I saw these pictures of these cars, Iran, Russia, and China are going to start building cars. They're completely getting away, and some of them will be electric. Anyway, Dr. Walalu, Russia et al. is moving towards a new economic world order, amongst other things. Your thoughts? Well,
6: just to add to what Scott was mentioning, which is right spot on, is the idea of that Russia has figured out the weak links within Europe. It also has identified, based at least on my research, identified the flaws within U.S. foreign policy, you know. And this is why uh, I, I do believe, again, uh, the regressive U.S. global uh, uh, leadership, shall we say, it, 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 it's not sort of manifesting uh, itself on, on, on the geopolitical landscape. And by that, what it suggests is that now Russia is in possession to rearrange, uh, shall we say, the chairs at the global geopolitical table by thereby reconfiguring the global order. And in that way, because the statements like what Blinken was saying, which nonsense, in my opinion, by that way, Russia will be able to manage the process by which who sits where at that geopolitical table. And that's exactly what the current conditions right now on the ground in Ukraine suggest, in my opinion. The economic aspect, yes, is moving into that direction. I argued this few months ago, if not a, year, two, a few years ago, that it will be just a matter of time before, for example, China and Russia will have some sort of rapprochement that will extend beyond just exchange of diplomatic niceties and so forth, and manifest itself into the economic sphere. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. Uh, I am aware of how uh, China, Russia, and Iran are going to be conducting uh, military maneuvers in Latin America, which to me sends a message right there loud and clear for the West to know.
0: Scott Ritter.
7: I, I'll just underscore the, uh, the importance of, of economics right now. Um, we're, we're on... You know, we, we've reached what I what I call a culminating point, or we're reaching it. Uh, sometime in mid-July, Europe is going to pass the uh, ain't-nothing-you're-ever-going-to-be-do-to-stop-your-pathetic-continent-from-sinking-into-the-bowels-of-the-universe uh, point. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, if Europe decided, hey, uh, we need to <laughs> reverse these sanctions, we need to uh, do the right thing here, we need to be smart, um, they might be able to stop this train wreck uh, from occurring, uh, get it back on the right track, and just have a very 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 difficult winter. Under no circumstances is this winter going to be anything other than very very, very difficult at its best, but sometime in July they 're going to hit the point where uh, no matter what you do, you can 't fix it uh and It's not just fix it in terms of ensuring you have enough energy to stay warm. Uh, It's about, you're going to shut down your industries and this isn't, you know, a numbers game. This isn't, you know, well, there's going to be this much reduction in industrial capacity. They're going to be shutting down factories and industrial processes in a manner which makes it, you know, it's not conducive for them being restarted. So many of these industries will be gone forever. The jobs will be gone forever. Europe is about to enter the dark ages. And with it, there will be political change. Uh, because no democratically elected government is going to be able to survive the economic hell that their policies are bringing on their own constituents. Boris Johnson is just the first. The Estonian uh, prime minister is the second. You're going to be seeing this summer, is going to be pop, 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 pop pop as they all fall and what's going to replace them are governments that have to respond to the needs of the people which means they're going to have to change their idiotic suicidal policies about ukraine um about nato and russia that this is why i think putin is just as patient as can be all he needs to do is keep winning and i don't mean winning in the uh you know in in, in the sense of that uh that, 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 that actor whose name I'm, I'm missing. It. Oh, uh, I'm winning. From uh, Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. Yeah, this isn't Charlie Sheen style winning. This is <laughs> real winning. This is you keep going, you keep crushing them, you keep embarrassing them. And it, it, And at some point, the, the European House of Cards is going to collapse. And when they start coming back, it's Russia and China who are going to be in control of the table. And they're, you know, it's not that people are going to come back and say, hey, I want to get back on the table. They're going to have to ask permission. And the Russians and the Chinese are going to say, yeah, um, yeah, you're not there anymore. You're, you're down here. You're over here. Uh, and they're going to rearrange it. And that's just the reality of the world, because Europe has committed suicide, economic suicide. It's very sad to watch. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm American and I, I know we're going to have a problem, too, here. But, you know, I grew up in Europe. Um, I have relatives that live in Europe. And um, it, this is this is this is very sad because Europe is literally about to enter um, the economic dark ages, and it's going to be a very very hard time for you know people who have become grown accustomed to a, a high standard of living. That's that's about to disappear.
0: David, I I listen to Scott. I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for Scott. But the problem I have with what he's saying is that Mike Pompeo has said that the U.S. led Holy War to conquer Russia and China. He's declaring it. Mike Pompeo has come out and said that America has an essentially God-assigned mission to control the world so as to preserve freedom and democracy for everybody, and that victory against Russia and China is therefore obligatory for the United States and its allies, not only to serve God, but also to serve God's people. So, 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 David, I hear what Scott's saying, and nothing but the utmost respect, for Scott, but Mike Pompeo is telling me something else. <laughs> well, this is no different than what uh, George Bush mentioned. I'm sorry. Reverend Pompeo. Reverend Pompeo uh, Reverend. is telling me something
6: else. <laughs> well, that was the same argument I would make, like what George W. Bush, when he said God has ordered him to spread democracy in the Middle East. I mean, come on. You know, we argued back then uh, and even prior to the invasion of Iraq. You know, I, I had a chance to write some stuff to, uh, through the chain of command, but of course, uh, it's, it's going to be rejected. And I say, you have no idea what are you getting into, let alone understanding the cultural differences that exist in the Middle East. And if you go in, you are not coming out till about 15, 20 years. Oh, they said, no, David, it will be a quick walk. I said, not in your dream. If you don't understand the complexities of this, and it's no different than now announcing what, what Pompeo has announced, You know, not understanding the, the, uh, the seriousness of something like this. Do they even understand if Russia and China, or now, not if, but when Russia and China forge a military alliance, which they don't have yet, but just imagine that one for a moment forging that military alliance, NATO will stand no chance. U.S. will not be able to fight two front wars. History, I'm a student of history, you know, Napoleon didn't succeed. Hitler didn't succeed. So what makes us think that we could do it? It was the same argument at least some of us have made regarding Afghanistan. There is no way you guys can win this war because you need to understand the reality of it. And this is no different. That's why... I I read the statement by Pompeo and I look at it just like hypes no more no less.
0: Hey Scott, it sounds like Reverend Pompeo is declaring jihad on on Russia and China.
7: <laughs> well, the I mean, I stand corrected. Um I I withdraw everything I said and um, <laughs> let the
0: congregation say amen. <laughs>
7: I'm I'm just gonna you know I'm gonna follow Father uh, Father Pompeo straight to the <laughs> gates of hell. Uh, no, look, the the good news is Pompeo has zero, um, you know, credibility in the United States. He was a joke as a Secretary of State. He was a joke as a um, CIA director. Um, and he was a joke as a member of Congress. Uh, he he's he's a joke, literally a joke, and he just. Amplifies um, you know how he, he the 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 ridiculousness of his position every time he opens his mouth i'm grateful for Mike Pompeo for saying these things because now he's on record with some of the most crass stupidity uh, imaginable and I, I I will bet I mean I know there's a big conservative movement in America, a very religious movement in America, and all that but you know uh, <laughs> The raging Cajun uh, is the guy I'm going to. It's the
8: economy,
7: stupid. And Mike Pompeo's pompous, you know, pump proselytizing, there's a lot of Ps there, mm-hmm. um, is, 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 is going to collapse in the face of economic reality. Um, you know, he can sit there and, and preach jihad all he wants, uh, but if you don't have food on the table, if you don't have oil in the heater, if you don't have you know, a job, if you don't have anything, you're not going to be following that. You're going to say, shut up, Pompeo, find a way to feed my
0: family. In all seriousness, let me ask you this. How dangerous is it to have a clown like Pompeo on the world stage as a former CIA chief, as a former secretary of state? The people, the Chinese are, are, they're, they're hearing this. Russia's hearing this. So can they be as dismissive as Pompeo as you can be?
7: I think so, because Pompeo is far removed from the levers of power. Um, you know, I mean, if he makes a run for presidency,
0: we'll find out.: when No we but no, from, but yeah. but the vision that he's articulating, he, he you know, he, he's not sitting in his basement. Playing with matchbox cars and deciding, oh, this is I'm.
2: And he's at the Hudson Institute. He's
0: at the Hudson Institute. He he's articulating a position, and he's he's not by himself. So, how concerned should we be that this monkey with a razor blade is running around the room, cutting people up? Uh, I would just. I would just take people out of the room and shut the door and let
7: him go. I mean, okay, he's, okay. he's literally okay. a man with no power. I think the Chinese and the Russians are very mature, um, very pragmatic okay. and very realistic. And I think Pompeo is so far removed from the lezer- levers of actual power and the the path to get him to those levers is so winding and, and impossible that they're not losing any sleep. Now, okay. if he actually, okay. if he actually, you know, gets elevated, yeah, then I think people would start to worry. But I think Mike Pompeo right now is literally speaking to himself.
0: One more question, Garland. And what made me think about this was, Scott, you just saying how far removed he is. Donald Trump is not that far away from replacing Joe Biden. Mike Pompeo is still riding in the golf cart with Donald Trump.
7: (laughs) Yeah, that is a worry. That is, that I'm not, look, America is a country that is you know, three percentage points away from um, total
6: insanity in either direction.
0: That's, um, there we go. Okay, David, real quick. I don't, I don't want to leave you out. D- David, you, if you want to respond.
6: Well, so I just want to add to what Scott mentioned is the idea that Washington now does not like or does not even encourage uh, in, instead of the end up marginalizing those who bring up issues of detente with, for example, Russia right now with what's going on rather than confrontation. It is no different. As an American, it is no different than addressing issues like, you know, national debt, which is a concern. Immigration is a concern. The alien educational system, which is a concern. The economy, which is a concern. And like what Scott mentioned, at the end of the day, an average Joe or average Jane is going to be worrying about what's for dinner. They're not going to be worrying about foreign policy because that's, you know, that's not their that's not the area,
2: and that's where the concern is. Let's go there, as far as something we were talking about, and that's the economy in Europe. Russia halts transit of Kazakh oil to Europe. We've seen recently, Russia seems to be, you could say, turning up the heat, or you could say, metaphorically, but, you know, uh, practically you could say, turning down the heat. In the last few weeks, they've they've cut back on gas supplies to Europe by 60%. They have said, oh yeah, next uh, month we got some... we gotta do. We're gonna cut your gas completely for ten days. And now they've cut back the Kazakh oil pipeline, cut off, and they're not saying when they're gonna get it done. I I feel like this and maybe I'm wrong that it's pushback, that it, they're throwing elbows, that they're saying, you're going to destroy us, you're going to take out our... We're not going to shut you completely off.
0: No free layups.
2: Yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah no layups. you go going to the layup, we're going to knock you into the third... We're going, to, we're going to shoot you with some elbows and knock you out. You're going to the foul line. At any rate, your thoughts. Enough of these sports metaphors. Uh, let's start with Scott. Oh, man, you took away the sports metaphors. I got nothing to
7: say. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, look, uh, the Russia... You, you know, Putin when he said um, we've just we haven't even begun yet uh, understands that this is a conflict that goes well beyond what's happening on the battlefield that this is a conflict a conflict with economic and geopolitical consequences um at a very minimum and we're talking about you know rechanging the, or changing up the world order um you know this war one of the reasons why this war was started is that uh nato and the united states rejected russia's reasonable Efforts to redefine a European security framework that was beneficial to both sides, um, that is still one of uh, one of you know vladimir putin's goals russia 's goals is a new European security framework which will require the strategic defeat of Europe, which means NATO uh, this isn't going to happen militarily because of nuclear weapons. Uh, you take the indirect approach rather than s- destroying the military, you destroy the governments that order the military by Uh, taking out the people who make the governments. And the best way to take out the people is through energy. Now, Russia is a strategic seller of energy. They have to be very careful about how they hit the off switch or else they damage their reputation as a reliable provider of energy on the market, especially when they're trying to court new markets in the Pacific and India elsewhere. Um, So Russia uses very legalistic Uh, processes. Um, You see them shutting down because of uh, sanctions. Hey, we need that turbine in Canada. But so, boom, off it goes. Now they're using, uh, I guess it's pollution issues out of Kazakhstan. to shut it down until this is done. Everything they're doing is legal by the book. But, you know, Russia's very, very, very clever. And you're going to see them doing this over and over and over again until Europe is literally totally cut off. Because one of the things we're finding out is every time Russia hits the off switch, Europe is desperately looking for that alternative supply that the United States promised. And it ain't there. The Russians are very good at creating this incremental, gradual accumulation of energy denial pain for Europe. And it's going to break Europe. It's going to crush Europe. It's going to destroy Europe. Um, This is a sad reality.
2: And Dr. Wallalu, we're seeing, I don't know if you've seen it, these Dutch farmers have their tractors out. We're seeing it. There's, I've seen pictures. Germany's going to start. I think that's going to spread. Um, your thoughts on the Russian? What appears to be, as I said, to me, it comes across as they're just cranking up the heat a little bit at a time. But maybe that's wrong. Figuratively. Figuratively speaking. In, in, in reality, they're cranking down the heat a little bit at a time. Dr. Wallalu.
6: Well, indeed, because you're going to see it first in Europe. You may want to add Italy to the picture there. And even in England, which reports are not coming out, uh, saying exactly how the economic conditions inside England. I had a chance to speak with people there that are saying, you know, the media is now reporting how inflation now is hitting every person in England, middle class, that is, to the point that their attorney general, is now ordering law enforcement not to arrest people who steal food because that's human nature. When you you start to have hunger going around, people have to do what they have to do to eat. That's just a normal reaction. But for Europe, just to go one point back to what Scott was mentioning, Europe Reserve, for example, for gas, stands at only 57%. You know how much it needs to be usually? About 80%. You can just see now, next winner is going to be a harsh one for them, and they're going to pay the price. Russia was strategic into this by thinking between China and India's market is going to replace its share to Europe, so they don't have to worry about Europe anymore.
0: As we get out, I'm just going to quickly read this. This is from the 3rd of June. Authorities in Poland remind citizens they can forage firewood from forests to keep warm amid soaring energy costs in the country. The government said it's taking steps to make it easier for people to collect firewood in an effort to ease the pressure created by skyrocketing energy bills and shortages of coal. And it's not only Poland that's doing this. Where's the other country? Is it Hungary? Where was it, Garland? I think it's Latvia. Uh, okay, somebody somebody else is in the forest looking for sticks because they can't get natural gas. This is not going to bode well for the Europeans. Scott Ritter, Dr. David Walalu, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time today. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you guys back. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Warmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Shinzo Abe, Japan's longest serving prime minister, uh, was assassinated earlier today. He was an arch conservative, ultra right politician, key partner and enabler of U.S. policy in the region. Uh, he was behind the escalation of uh, conflict with China and one of the creators or contributors to the Asia Pivot. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. We're joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor, a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally, Dr. Colin Campbell. As always, Colin, welcome back.
9: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: We're also joined by a writer at net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Kavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. As always, thanks for having me. So let me start with you, Colin. A former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe assassinated earlier today. Your thoughts?
9: Yeah, really unfortunate, of course, for, the, for Japan and people around the nation who are fans of Abe, of course, um, you know, Japan's longest serving prime minister. So he made friends around the globe. Of course, he was a political figure. So maybe not everyone agreed with his decisions or what he stood for. But one thing is certain, he's one of the Japan's Arguably the most recognizable or if not one of the most recognizable prime ministers in modern history. So when hearing about his assassination, of course that made US headlines. Uh, of course the situation in which he was killed also disturbing by a man who seemed to have put together his own gun. Uh, Japan is known for having very low gun rates. In fact, I believe they only had one homicide last year in comparison to the tens of thousands that we have here, that we had here in the United States. So to hear that someone, especially someone such as a former prime minister of Japan, was killed by gunshots. That is disturbing, of course, uh, and I'm sure even more disturbing for people in Japan. He, the, it doesn't seem like the motivation there was political. Uh, the guy thought that he was affiliated with some group that he had a disagreement with, and that's where he shot him in the back, uh, you know, something that is typically considered very cowardly. But apparently this guy is also suffering from some type of mental issue as well.
0: Dr. Jim Kavanaugh.
8: Yeah, it does not seem like this act itself has much political significance. You know, we I mean, know very little about this. We know very little about this at the point. But apparently, the guy is kind of rambling and incoherently. It's in his uh, interrogation, and he said he was after some religious figure and shot Abe, I guess, by accident or something. Abe uh, is the character who's interesting, and we know about him. And you know, he was, as was said, you know, the guy who helped the uh, pivot to Asia and. He was a, he was the grandson of, of the monster of Manchuria, mm-hmm. his PC clan, you know, and to, and when he came into power and his he was explicitly, it's a little bit like Ukraine, you know, it's like the fascists coming back in and saying we're not sorry for what we did in World War, you know, we we were on you know we were doing the right thing, and the Japanese rule in Manchuria by his grandfather was vicious and nasty, and you know he was. Essentially, uh, you know, coming back and trying to you say, oh, we have nothing to be sorry for, and we should be and bring, make Japan able to have uh, offensive military again. So he's a guy who's to be known as a reactionary. But you know, this this assassination is another, you know, kind of one-off, non-political, I think, event.
2: Uh, Boris Johnson announced his resignation as leader of the U.K.'s Conservative Party on Thursday. Now, here's what's interesting. This article and many more say he leaves amid several high-profile scandals. However, we can go back to Brown and Theresa May, on and on. Uh, Most U.K. prime ministers that you examine had some pretty major scandals. I believe this is about the economic situation, which is dire, in the UK, and the Estonian prime minister, 21.9% inflation, resigned today. The Bulgarian government has fallen. The Latvian government has fallen. And I suspect that with the dearth of cheap energy from Russia going into Europe, the economic damage is going to cause a lot of governments to fall, a whole lot of governments to fall. Let's start with you, Dr. Colin Campbell, your thoughts.
9: Yeah, I think that it's going to only get worse simply because we are in the middle of summer right now. And of course, uh, the demand for fuel and, and gas and oil is only going to go up uh, after a couple months from now. And when we see the inflation that's been lingering, um, not just here, but in other nations across the globe, with these high fuel costs, there are going to be a lot of angry citizens out there in various nations looking to their leaders for some type of solution. And I have to say, I don't think that there are very strong solutions uh, that are really being rendered. We do know that uh, Johnson did uh, have a tax that he put on uh, oil companies for some of the revenue that they were pulling in and still making money and trying to get some additional uh, money from the government. Um, from that tax. Here in the U.S., we seem to have a leader that's much less effective um, in the machinations of trying to bring costs down, but also trying to corral the confidence of the public and that he's doing the right thing. Uh, we have seen fuel costs go down a little bit, but there are still a lot of people who are not satisfied with the, the, the Chelonian way in which these fuel costs are, are decreasing. Not only that, when you look at the cost of everything else, it it almost doesn't make that much of a dent in how much they've gone down over the past week or two. So when we look at the fuel costs, when we look at the the rising costs of everything else, a lot of people will be looking at their leaders saying, you know, what is your point of being in office if my life has become that much more uncomfortable?
2: I left out uh, Macron losing his ruling coalition. You know, it's all about the money. And ultimately, Schultz is on the ropes. Schultz is, oh, he's got one foot in the grave and the other on a patch of ice. Uh, Jim, your thoughts? Oh, and let me add this. The Russians cut off the Kazakh oil pipeline the other day. They're going to cut off gas completely for 10 days next month. I think they're turning up the heat. And the reality is there is no solution for Europe other than, A, a zombie apocalypse, Or B, striking a deal with the Russians and getting their energy going again, Jim.
8: We're heading toward that zombie apocalypse. There's no question about it. I mean, this is look. uh, uh, It's happening in Belgium with with uh, uh, the farmers in in Holland, rather, with the farmers, and Italy is starting, and Germany is starting. With people are saying, Colin made a statement. I think they're going, "What are you doing for me?" (laughs) You, we've been hearing this for 20 years, oh, this is great, this is, you know, we're going to set things up, everything's going to be great, it's going to be a new world order. What, what? How has it helped my life? And now this has come to a really big head and exploded with the Ukraine thing, because they've cut themselves off on the instructions of the United States from the biggest supplier of their most essential commodities and energy supplies in the world. So. Europe is going to go through all kinds of upheavals. And as you say, there are going to be all these little scandals that will show you on that. Then it's going to be about that. They won't say what it's about because they don't, they don't have any way. They have no solution to this except more war and zombie apocalypse. Really, it's the, the, what can they do? It, it's gotten, and it's really, you have to understand, they're not going back to the new normal. Russia hasn't even started. Retaliation against this They are just starting retaliation. They cut off these gas supplies, they're going to take over that gas supply in, 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 in the West, uh, and uh, you know, they start doing serious, aggressive retaliations. They got no response to this. So it's very difficult. there's going to be up people, as there are happening, we see now throughout Europe, that's going to get worse.
0: We didn't send this to you, but this came up today. And, and Jim, your writing the piece Ukraine negotiation kabuki made me think about this. Foreign Minister Lavrov said if the West wants to defeat Russia on the battlefield in Ukraine, there's no sense of talks. The Western nations have been supplying Ukraine with multiple weapons, escalating the situation amid the special military operation being carried out by Moscow. He says if the West— wants not negotiations, but the victory of Ukraine over Russia on the battlefield, then probably there is simply nothing to talk about with the West. With you having written Ukraine negotiation kabuki, your thoughts, Jim Kavanaugh.
8: Well, look, this is the essential problem here. You know, Russia is demanding things. It's demanding what they demanded since 2014, uh, which was, you know, treat the Donbass uh, decently and neutrality, and they didn't get it. And they said for eight years, we are not going to put up with this. They've demanded what they've demanded since nineteen ninety nine about you, about NATO, since at least. Uh, so, so they're reacting to this, and there is really one of two solutions: somebody is going to give up and acknowledge that either we're going to give, now the Russians want more, because they're not going to give back to Donbass, and Kharkov and uh, other regions in, in uh, Odessa, other regions in, in, in Ukraine that the Russians have entered, and the people there don't want to go back to the, to the fascist regime in Kiev. And the fascist. so you have the situation set up. What are they negotiating about, really? The end of negotiations are going to be about terms of surrender. From Ukraine, Zelensky's still going around saying, I'm not giving up any territory. And the United States and all the American leaders are still going around saying, we're going to stick with you until you win. So, and that's what Boris Johnson did twice, went over and told them not to negotiate. Because it's true that, that, that Zelensky is negotiating nothing but terms of surrender. And now that those terms of surrender are getting worse and worse. And what the United States wants to have happen, and NATO and Zelensky, is for Russia to surrender, which they would be doing if they pulled out of, of, of Donbas. So you're in a very dangerous situation because the United States and and Ukraine and the Western countries did not abide by the Minsk agreement and did not stop uh, building up Ukraine infrastructure in in, uh, the NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. So now Russia is is determined to push that back, and they will do – they're not going to be backing off on that because – so, as, you know, I, mean, I read these things in the nation. We're going to give Putin a chance to save face. I mean, Putin has not to save face here. This is a problem. Somebody is going to have to accept defeat. And the only negotiations really are over the terms of defeat. And it doesn't look, and the Russians aren't going to do that. <laughs> That's going to require serious warfare if the Americans and the Ukrainians think they can force the Russians to accept defeat.
0: Uh, Dr. Colin Campbell, I know we didn't plan to discuss this, but listening to what Jim just said, add to that, I think it was Poroshenko who said that Ukraine was never serious about the Minsk Accords anyway, that that was merely to buy time for the Ukraine to be able to rebuild its army. So now with all of that being clearly understood, you've got the Russian foreign minister saying, if you guys want to keep fighting, there ain't nothing for us to talk about.
9: That's right. These stall tactics are very uh, obvious to, to many who are studying this in a more intricate level. I mean, we do know that this is a proxy war um, that many people believe the U.S. is just using this to really stand up against Russia. But it'll be futile in the end. We had Putin recently saying that if they thought that Russia was being defeated or that Ukraine was winning some edge, they have another thing coming because of the fact that they really haven't started to really retaliate against Ukrainian forces. So if you think about the devastation that Zelensky talked about, uh, losing so many troops every single day, and then you have Putin saying that-
0: A battalion a a day."
9: day. A battalion a day, right? And then you have Putin saying that he hasn't even started yet. Well, that gives you an idea of what's to come the longer this conflict lasts. And then you have those who are looking at this saying that, we have to look at um, what Austin said, Secretary of Defense Austin said in late April when he talked about wanting to see Russia weaken to the degree that it can't do the things that it's done before in invading Ukraine. And so it, you know, he's looking at, uh, he was saying that Russia had already lost some of its military capability and some of its troops, but they wanted that to be augmented, that effect to be augmented. Putin is pushing back already, has recently pushed back and saying, listen, whatever you're looking for, as far as that conflict is concerned, trying to degrade our forces is not going to work because this has only just begun. So when you look at all of those factors combined, losing a battalion a day in Ukraine, the tens of billions of dollars that have already been spent here in the U.S. with people suffering every day and a president with low approval ratings and with rising costs on their way. And you have Russia saying, listen, we aren't even started yet. This is just the the ball has just started rolling as far as our offensives and our aggression is concerned. This can be catastrophic going into the fall and winter months if this prolongs anymore.
0: Garland, let me tell you what I noticed yesterday and was even more apparent today. When I went to the Washington Post and when I went to the New York Times, there was no story about Ukraine on the front page.
2: Yeah. Noticed that on the news, too. It's getting quiet.
0: Jim Cavanaugh, have you noticed that? That over the last couple days... It's almost as though there's nothing happening in Ukraine in terms of mainstream media. Well, it comes up in the time when they talk about
8: inflation. It comes up when the guy comes when Dees or or or, or uh, Biden gets up and says we're in this because we have to stop Putin and the American people are willing to put up with this and we're going to have to put up with it until we, until we get what we want until it's over, which means until we win in Ukraine until the, the Ukraine wins uh, in. The, against Russia. And this is where it comes up and where it still has to come up, but they try to avoid, they don't really, all the narratives about it that were directly about it, you know, about R- Russia's losing, Russia's, you know, involved in all these civilian uh, massacres and blah, 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 and, you know, are, are are dissipated because, you know, that, although they still come back in implicitly when you see it, when there is an article about it, but they they don't know quite how directly to address the issue of you, of Ukraine right now. So they'll
2: let me, Jim. Let me throw this at you since you're making a comment. And we throw this at you and you referred to it. Brian Deese, who is a Biden advisor who formerly worked for BlackRock, was asked by CNN, "Quote: What do you say to those families that say, listen, we can't afford to pay four eighty-five a gallon for months, if not years?'" Deese, this is about the future of the liberal world order. Mm-hmm. And we have to stand firm. Here's what I have to say. You should have asked me that beforehand. You don't wreck the economy, impoverish me. And when I say, why am I suffering for the liberal world order? You start off by saying, hey, we want to maintain the liberal world order. And you're going to have to suffer. What do you have to say? And I say, no, thanks. But that's why I say this isn't a democracy. In a democracy, the power works from the bottom up and the people would have to okay this. They jumped into this thing. They told us, hey, this is happening. It's because Putin wants to spread the Soviet Union. He woke up on the bad side of the wrong side of the bed, blah, blah, blah. And now they say, well, that ain't really it. This is really about the liberal world order. Jim.
8: Yeah, it's another version, another example of undeclared war. This is a war that's gone down without any vote upon it, without any discussion about it. It's gone down because those in charge want to maintain what they call the liberal world order, the rules-based international order, which is we make the rules and everybody follows our orders. And they know that is, and the liberal order, what's this liberal order where, where, where journalists are being punished for, 175 years for telling the truth, when Ukraine closes all the TV stations and the newspapers. So this has nothing to do with democracy and freedom, but that's what they want to pose it as. But And it, it is a threat. What it's a threat to is the unipolar world, economically and politically dominated by the United States.
9: It is a threat to that. And it's already done away with that. <laughs> and that's what they want to try and say. Dr. Campbell. If the White House isn't concerned about what these said, they definitely... Uh, will be in the near future. When D said that liberal world order, we have to remember that we think in binary terms when it comes to politics. We have the Democrats, we have Republicans. We have liberalism considered uh, to be aligned with Democrats, conservatism aligned with Republicans. When he said liberal world order, I think that could, that would be a great ad for Republicans to run, even if the semantics are a bit different than what Deese was actually alluding to when Deese is talking about a liberal world order, he's talking about a global collection of policies and agreements and treaties and you know alliances and collaborations to try to sustain some type of global system, even if that is undesirable. On top of that, just saying liberal world order, the the, the just the. The etymology of world order, new world order, liberal world order—all of those words, right in that row, in that succession, <laughs> are, are very much uh, maligned by members who consider themselves to be more right-leaning, for conservatives. This is going to be—if this is not part of some political election ad uh, coming up in the fall or in upcoming months—I don't know what would be, but this would be an easy grab for Republicans to say, "Listen, this is what you're." voting for if you try to vote for democrats a liberal world order do you want to be controlled that way do you want to be and of course this runs antithetical to their party uh patron right uh former president donald trump who said america first so you're looking at a stark contrast here when it comes to the the linguistics that are being used and they can republicans definitely can use it to their advantage
0: jim kavanaugh when you hear Deese talk about the liberal world order. Well, when I listen to one of the last speeches that Putin gave, he's talking about we're fighting against a unitary system. We're fighting for a world order where democracy reigns and people are able to make decisions for themselves. I mean, when it, it, to me, Putin's making more sense on that line than than Deese or Joe Biden. Well, yeah, this is the, the post-Soviet Union Russia the liberals
8: who took you know, politically or ideologically in the large sense of the word liberals thought that the Americans really meant what they said about democracy and freedom and free, free speech and liberal values. They wanted to destroy the power of the Russian landmass, whatever policy. They want to break that up. They want to make the United States the most powerful country and, cap- and, and every other country incapable of preventing them from imposing their will on every region of the world and that's what we're now fighting against that's nothing to do with what could be meant by a liberal world order i think colin's right that in terms of the rhetoric of american politics it's going to work precisely the way he said you, know, <laughs> you know liberal elites blah 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 and it's true <laughs> it's a large uh so but you know it is interesting to, to and people don't read and listen to what t- people like putin and lavrov these guys are. Light years above people like Biden and Blinken, and you know, and all these clowns who don't know what the hell they're talking about. These people have a sense of history. They know what it means to have a liberal, a real liberal. Though is that nations have sovereignty. They act independently. They're allowed to have their own paths of development. People are allowed to choose for themselves, and nations are allowed to choose for themselves. And that's the world, in, I mean, it's an international level that we have to build. And that's not what the United States wanted and has been trying to impose since the demise of the Soviet Union,
9: which is we make the rules and you follow our orders. Colin Campbell. A recent headline from Newsweek says that the U.S. has more chess grandmasters than Russia for the first time ever. But that almost belies the fact that many people believe that Putin is actually the one playing chess here while we're playing checkers with this conflict and, and Ukraine and the way that it will shape American politics going forward as well and just the global concerns uh, in the near future. So we have these this dichotomy of ideas here, and it does look like Putin has outthought the U.S. in many different Different ways, even if media here are focusing on more of the winds that Ukraine is facing. How will this equate to something that is protracted? And is America really ready for that? A lot of people are asking that question today.
2: There's a, something that I think we've got to talk about, and that is at least six dead in shooting at July 4th parade outside of Chicago. I'm sure you're all familiar with that, a tragic thing. But I will put it in context that. This is going on everywhere. I've talked to people recently, me being one of them, who said, you know, I'm almost scared to go to Vince anymore, that some nutcase with a rifle is going to be standing around and start start opening up. This is going to eventually have an effect to the point where people are going to be afraid to go to the park or, or places like that. Or Mail. the grocery store. Yeah, how about that? Anywhere. Um, let's start with you. Buffalo, New York. Exactly. It's, it's horrifying. Uh, let's start with you, Jim.
8: Yeah, I mean, look, this is crazy stuff. <laughs> this guy... This kid was known to, twice. He went, he was brought to the police by his family. He threatened to kill his whole family. The cops came in and took all his knives from him. And then his father, he couldn't get a gun except his father, who was some kind of local politician who ran for mayor, had to bring and vouch for him and make an exception for him to buy guns. After he had been twice brought to the police and put on their radar as a, 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 a specific threat to himself and to others. Still, in for some, for some way, he passed a background check. Look, I'm a supporter of gun rights. This guy shouldn't have had a gun. And there was specific uh, information that was available to everybody about that. So how did he get that gun? How did he get those guns? Well,
0: Well, Jim, the answer to that question is, even though the police were called to his home twice— the family ne- never pressed charges, so since the family never pressed charges, the report just went by the wayside. That's the answer to your question.
8: Karen, the father brought it. The father had to bring it. The father had to actively go and say, "Yeah, I'm going to make sure you get your gun."
0: No, I understand that, but my my only th- there was no red flag in the system because the family never filed charges. That's. That's the, that's the that's the answer to your question, yeah. Doctor Campbell.
9: Yeah, the, the thing is, we are not taking this situation seriously enough as a nation, or even more specifically, the people who are supposed to be representing us. Uh, and, and Congress and our local legislatures are not taking this seriously. They are so beholden to this pure, purest view of the Second Amendment that obviously, I mean, and it's an understatement, that it is deleteriously affecting the American public. We have systems that are failing us, right? The way that this, uh, that Cremo was able to obtain his gun, the way that the gunman in Yavalde was able to walk into a school and you had 19 uh, police officers, there that couldn't stop the carnage that followed soon after. And there are many other stories where there were just cracks and checks, background checks, or policies where people weren't supposed to get guns or whatever. And we keep saying the same thing, that it just comes down to mental health. But it's very interesting that it's only mental health in these types of situations. But when it comes to gun violence in other areas, mental health is never the actual uh, reason or suggestion. It's always that they're just violent people that just want to kill each other. We're not really taking this seriously in a comprehensive way. The rest of the world is looking at us and just either shaking their heads and just saying WTF. Many of you out there already know what that means. I think even sympathy is starting to run low uh, to some degree because our politicians just seem unable to meet the challenge that they were elected to do, and that is to make us safer, to protect us as a nation. They are severely falling short, and the lives are being lost daily.
0: And Jim Cavanaugh, to Colin's point, the politicians are failing us because they have now become beholden to the financing of the NRA and gun manufacturers. Okay,
8: look, I'm not, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm someone who opposes the right of citizens to have arms, Okay. And I don't, I think the point exactly is that we're not dealing with this in a comprehensive way. Okay, the guy in uh, Japan made his own gun. People got to do that, <laughs> you know. Someone, uh, uh, you know, someone who, uh, the, the, the two days after, after what happened in Avalde, there was another almost mass shooting in West Virginia where a guy with an outdoor barbecue went home and got his rifle and came back. Some woman at the barbecue pulled out her legal gun and shot him and prevented 40 people from getting killed. So you can talk about this in a number of different ways. Okay. And the reason you either have or don't have a right to bear, to have, to to own arms is an important political point. But, you know, uh, so, but the whole aspect of this, we have a culture that is not only people own guns. There are a lot of places in the world people own a lot of guns. Including like Afghanistan, (laughs) where this thing doesn't, this kind of thing doesn't happen. A lot of guns, (laughs) and there is a mental health problem that is not taken seriously. There's a cultural problem that is not taken seriously. There's all kinds of issues that have to be. That really, the the only thing we shouldn't be. I I don't think it helps if the only thing we talk about when some when violence happens is what 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 weapon was used. Mm -hmm. Was a knife? Mm -hmm. Was a sword? Then, but. We've got to talk about the causes of violence. Guns do not cause violence. And if you look at the statistics, the rate of gun ownership has gone way up and the rate of hom- gun homicides has gone way down. So it's, a, it's just a fact that guns don't cause violence. But something in our culture impels young men especially to be going out and doing stuff like this. And it, it is crazy.
0: And the statistics tell us it's not just young men, it's young white men. Right. Dr. Colin Campbell... Dr. Jim Kavanaugh, thank you both. Greatly appreciate it. Have good weekends. All right, you too. All right. Folks, you've been listening to the critical hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.